We don't normally clap our Bible readers, <laughs> but we were all there with you. Thank you for serving us. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, uh, spoken, written down, uh, able to be read and heard. We ask, Heavenly Father, that indeed you would do that great work in us now, that we might hear you and know you and love you because of your powerful work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a popular thing to do these days, uh, to search out your origins. Uh, has anyone ever looked into their family tree? Anyone? Yep. Keep your hands up. Anyone in, their, in your extended family looked into your family tree? Yeah, I see lots of hands. Uh, when I was growing up, it felt like everyone wanted to find someone from the first fleet in their family tree, which of course is an interesting endeavour because we must be the only country in the world where we wear our criminal ancestors as a badge of honour. These days, the internet and Ancestry.com have made it easier than ever before. Most recently, uh, the latest tech is you can get a, and send it back, a DNA test so that the system uh, can find matches in your family tree you might not even know about. But I mention this with a word of caution. Be careful what you wish for, as members of our extended family have done just that and discovered some upsetting surprises. Just remember that. Anyway, upsets aside, family trees or genealogies, as they're also called, in our culture, they, they can give us an interesting sense of where we come from and even at the same time, not really affect our lives much at all. In other cultures, though, they're treated with far more significance. And it's not just the bloodlines that are being mentioned, but the rights and privileges that come with them because there's a much stronger sense of being a product of your past. So then, on the one hand, when you come to the Bible and you come to the New Testament, Paul has to tell people not to get into controversies and arguments over genealogies, they would just lead people away from trusting in Jesus. I expect because they were trusting in what family they came from and who they were related to for their spiritual origins. But on the other hand, when you come to the Bible, well, in fact, in my experience, this is where I first came across genealogies. Was that your experience? And so Luke, as we heard him read, makes a point of including Jesus' family tree. And you might not recognise all the names, but there are some significant names you may well have come across before in reading the Bible. Matthew starts his gospel with Jesus' family tree as well. And here, as we've read through Genesis 1 to 11, we've found uh, multiple times. We found the descendants of Cain, the descendants of Seth, the sons of Noah and of Shem and of Terah in genealogies, which means clearly, clearly these are important. They've been included for a reason. In fact, the whole book of Genesis, not just chapters 1 to 11, the whole book of Genesis is divided up by a series of genealogies. Uh, there's actually this recurring pattern wherever you see the words, this is the account of, 
insert person's name here, uh, that's happening throughout the book of Genesis and gives it its shape. So we'd be wise to pay attention and foolish to skip them. Instead, we want to understand them. Why all this trouble of recording these in the first place? And think of all the effort that has gone on by God's spirit and powerful hand for them to be transmitted down to us here today. We may read them wondering why they're here and what possible use they could be. But in fact, we're meant to follow what they follow. Uh, To follow the search. These accounts are so important because they map out a search. The search for whom? Well, for the answer to that, come back to Genesis 3, verse 15 with me, where after the terrible events of the garden that we heard about some time ago and Adam and Eve's rejection of God's word and of God himself in the midst of God's anger and judgment, as the full weight of our human rejection of God is made clear, even when that dark cloud is upon everything, God gives a promise of hope. When he says to the serpent, to Satan, the great enemy of God, in chapter 3, verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God will give the woman an offspring, a descendant, a descendant who will defeat the lies and slavery in which Satan holds people captive. He will come as the serpent crusher. Now, what is a genealogy but a list of descendants? And so each time we move forward in the book of Genesis, each time a descendant of Eve is born, the question that should be front and centre for us is, is this the one? Uh, Is this the serpent crusher who will free people, uh, free people from their slavery to lies and our rejection of God? Is this the one? Well, let's look at what happens. Uh, Chapter 4 begins, uh, and it's good to have your Bible open in front of you because we're just going to sort of turn the pages a bit here. Chapter 4 begins with the first descendants of Adam and Eve, but neither Cain or Abel, that neither of them turn out to be the serpent crusher, nor will he come from their family. In Abel's case, because he's murdered, and in Cain's case, because he's Abel's murderer. We do get to follow the path of Cain's descendants and on the surface they seem to master the world. They build cities, they live in tents and they raise livestock, they make tools and they make music. But even though they master the world, uh, they seem to, they haven't really. Instead they are mastered by sin as Cain gives rise to descendants who themselves are murderers like him, their forefather. And so the serpent crusher will not come from among them. Turn with me then to chapter 5. How does it begin? Uh, Here's that thing I was telling you about, that marker. This is the written account of Adam's family line. 
Because in his kindness, God gives Adam and Eve a third son, Seth. Will the serpent crusher come from this line? And Genesis, it emphasises that this child is the image of God as Adam and Eve were. Sure, so were Cain and Abel. But now we're meant to look to Seth, to his descendants for the serpent crusher. And did you notice when we were hearing it read, there's a very clear pattern in the way each generation is listed. Uh, The thing is, the only thing we're told about most of these descendants is that they make other descendants. And yet, they are whole human lives and they represent whole networks of relationships But the thing that that does is it highlights uh, the pattern at the end of each generation where, take a look at 5 verse 8 as an example, Uh, altogether Seth lived 912 years and then he died. Making descendants and death. He died and so did his descendants. Death is now a real and terrible reality and part of our experience the repetition here only serves to highlight it and while it continues so too by God's kindness does the search for the serpent crusher now there are glimmers of something special to come you know just sort of little you know bright spots where we meet exceptions to the pattern even here in chapter 5 here in Enoch in verse 22 and Noah at the end. Enoch, verse 22, walked with God. So there was something unique about his relationship with God. But then he too was gone. Uh, so he wasn't the serpent crusher. What about Noah? The other exception. In many ways, things look great, really bright with Noah on the scene and the extent the account was given of him. His father... Uh, is reported in verse 28 prophesying he will comfort us in our labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed and so there's this hope of reversal but could he reverse the effects of the curse and as he's saved through the flood you wonder if he isn't the one But in chapter 9, the effects of sin still remain. Even in him and his son, he is not the serpent crusher either. And so we come to chapter 10, where the flood has passed, and now we see the nations raised up from the three sons of Noah. But the die is cast, and it's Shem descendants particularly that will receive the blessing of God which leads us then to chapter 11, the final in these 11 chapters of the accounts of descendants. As we read of the list of descendants, and it takes us to Terah, and from Terah, verse 27, to Abram. Now, the thing about this, this last list of descendants, is that after this, everything will slow down. What spans tens, if not hundreds of generations in chapters 1 to 11 is followed by a span concentrating on only one man, Abraham, in chapters 12 to 25. 
We had the chance to uh, focus on Abraham last week. Abraham, whose name means father and yet was childless. Abram, who had his name changed to Abraham, uh, which means father of many, even though he was still childless. This whole unfolding of generation after generation and genealogy after genealogy leads us in God's purposes to Abraham as the one. And yet he is still not the serpent crusher. The thing is, though, by God's sovereign and electing purposes through the narrowing down that we see from all families to one family, what we see here that's so incredibly significant is that God works through people and our humanity, even our sinfulness, to bring about his good purposes. And here it's Abraham, the one whose descendant will overcome the lies of Satan which hold people in slavery, the one to whom God makes specific promises in order to bless those who haven't received these promises. We talked about those promises last week from Genesis 12, 1 to 3, of a land, a nation, a name and blessing. Here at the end of the beginning chapters of the Bible is a new beginning, a beginning which marks the beginning of the nation of Israel, but which marks our beginning as God's people as well. For the history of the search for the serpent crusher continues on from one generation to the next. It continues through time and through the events of the Old Testament where perhaps you've made the link between names you heard in the genealogies and, and, and the events that are recorded there. But ultimately, as we heard in Luke, these lists of descendants end on one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Galatians 3 verse 14 puts it in the New Testament, Christ, uh, there it is, Christ redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And you and I have received the blessing promised to Abraham, every one of us, when we place our trust in Jesus. We've been freed from Satan's lies. That is God's promise. We've been freed from the slavery of sin under which we lived without Christ. And as we come to the end of a series, uh, of this series, in what better way could we spend our time than to be reminded? Be reminded how Jesus Christ is the end point of these promises and how through his death and resurrection we have been given life. How do we see that then? Uh, how does the crushing and striking of Genesis 3 play out? Well, let's run through that uh, uh, together. First, Jesus is born of a woman. Galatians 4 verse 4, but when 
the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. Now that is incredibly significant. God became man. What an extraordinary privilege and honour for us just that he would humble himself to do that, let alone what he would do as that. And he, that man, is a descendant of Abraham, the descendant of Terah, the descendant of Shem, the descendant of Seth, the son of Adam. And remember, Jesus' birth isn't just about his bloodline, though, like I said, his humanity is crucial, but in its uniqueness, it also conveys his authority. Authority to crush Satan, as God had promised one of the descendants would. And authority given through the promises given to his forefathers, which through him are now ours in him. Second, Jesus enters into a deadly conflict. Have you noticed that language? It's been coming up a bit today, but it's there in the Bible. That's where it comes from, uh, of conflict and of a battle and of a war and of, well, we'll get to some other aspects of it. It is a conflict he will win, though. Hebrews 2 verse 14 recalls it this way. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus destroys Satan. But at the cost of his own life, he crushes Satan, but Satan strikes his heel. Though death is not the end. For through his resurrection from the dead, we may share in the victory. For third, Jesus shares his victory with his disciples. As we heard read in those words from Hebrews 2, Jesus gives authority uh, over Satan. Uh, from his authority, he gives it to others because his victory over Satan is a victory won for all people. We experience the benefits. Though not everyone receives this gift. Not everyone trusts in God's promises. And that's why... Uh, fourthly, we live in the days of God's patience. Satan has been defeated, but he's yet to be finished off. The battle has been won, but there's the mop-up and the remaining skirmishes are yet to be cleared away. We experience hardship, even though we're talking about Jesus' victory. We experience grief and we experience difficulty, even physical death itself. Why is it we go through that? 2 Peter chapter 3 from verse 8. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. 
Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is gathering a people. That's why we still have to wait. God is gathering a people. He's been gathering us. He'll be gathering others, a people he calls his very own, adopted into the family of the king, a people like us who have heard and who have trusted the extraordinary promises of God for life, for hope, a people who have, by his work in us, turned, our, uh, turned back to God, a people who know Satan prowls around looking to devour people but who now can resist him and know he will flee from them. We are that people. We are God's people. And so, as we've... uh, We might have skipped the genealogies uh, in the past, but that was because we were sort of going to put them together today... But as we've heard them and as you read them again in the future, God's word reveals our spiritual origins. And they are of great significance because of the, the, the promises and the inheritance that comes with them. And so having been reminded of our spiritual origins today, we can live wisely each day. We now are enabled to understand the sovereign purposes of our God and maker and rejoice. That's what they make us do, isn't it? Rejoice. And see the greatness of him through his plan to save the world through a human and in history where we as people are precious to him. And God's word today shows us Jesus as the fulfiller of these promises, as the great promise keeper. For only when he arrived to uh, do God's plans make sense to us. Where only uh, then do we meet the serpent crusher for whom we are meant to look. And when we see him, There is no need for us to look anywhere else and indeed nowhere else for us to look. And do you notice how in his pursuit of uh, his plans he, he, he focuses in on one nation but in order to serve all nations? How through the narrowing to one line and one family and finally one man, God brings about freedom from Satan's lies and our slavery to rejecting God, not just to Israel, but to us, to all nations. And so as our God is concerned for the nations, so must we share that concern. We are counted among them, wonderfully, and having the Mackays here today, uh, I'd love to say that was our you know, great coordinated planning on our part, but someone else was planning that. And having the balls and our support for uh, CMS and more college, uh, and our, the opportunities that this brings for us to partner with and see people from all nations here 
of their spiritual origins when they trust in Jesus. What a wonderful privilege it is. And remembering that as we want the heart of God to shape our hearts, that we still live among the nations ourselves. And it's our prayer and desire that others would stand shoulder to shoulder with us in him. And finally, finally, we're reminded again to look forward to the final victory. Whatever the circumstances of our life, through all the circumstances of our lives, aware of Satan and his lies, but not afraid. Patient rather than anxious. Confident in God rather than hopeless. For one from among us has crushed the ancient serpent and he will share all that is his with us. And the time is coming, it will come very soon, that he will return and all will see Jesus Christ is Lord, the one who has received the promises and blessings and victory that were bestowed on him all the way back in Genesis in the beginning. I'll lead us in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for our spiritual origins and all that you have done to bring us to this point of knowing and trusting Jesus as our Lord. Grant us, Heavenly Father, that how our hearts would be shaped by your heart, uh, that your love of the nations might be our love. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would add to our number those you are saving for eternal life and sharing in the promises to Abraham. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as we continue to live each day in the life you have given us, in the new life we have in Christ, that you might grant us that memory of all that you have done and confidence and hope with patience for the glory of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.